All right, biohackers, who doesn't love a yummy, creamy whey protein shake? Oh, it is such a treat. And I really love it as a meal replacement, post-workout recovery, maybe even a midday snack. So this is why I have to tell you about Puri Protein Powder. I absolutely love the bourbon vanilla flavor and the chocolate, but I think I got to go with the, the vanilla as my favorite. So it's smooth, it's delicious. And you know what else? It's pretty awesome that the flavors come from real natural ingredients like the bourbon vanilla seeds from Madagascar. And let's talk about quality because there's a lot of junk whey protein on the market that I would not recommend. So the Puree whey protein, it comes from pasture-raised cow's milk with no hormones, no GMOs, and no pesticides. This is because Puree's mission has always been to be the best at offering pure, clean, and superior products that, that support health and well-being. And what I think truly sets them apart is that they are fully transparent with their product testing. Every batch is third-party tested against more than 200 contaminants and certified clean by the Clean Label Projects. Not all brands can say this. Plus, each product contains a QR code so you can personally scan it and review the test results at home. I know you're excited to try it out. So what you're going to do is head on over to puri.com slash biohackerbabes. That's P-U-O-R-I.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes at checkout to save 20%. All right, let's get back to the show. We're digging deep and asking the questions we need to ask. Years of stress and not just emotional. I was depleting my body. I was malnourished. I'm working out like crazy. I'm eating all these healthy foods. How could I not be well. We have to get back to the basics. We can change the way our genes are expressed. Anyone that wants to improve their health or upgrade their health, they should be biohacking. My name is Renee. And I'm Lauren. We are the Biohacker Babes. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. The Biohacker Babes podcast aims to create insight into the body's natural healing abilities strengthen your intuition, and empower you with techniques and modalities to optimize your health and wellness. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 27 of the Biohacker Babes. Thank you for joining us for season two. I'm Renee and I'm here with my sister Lauren today. Hi everyone. If you missed the first episode of our new season, we are talking all about brain health this month. And today we welcome our special guest, Dr. Austin Perlmutter. Austin Perlmutter, MD, is a board-certified internal medicine physician. He received his medical degree from the University of Miami and completed his internal medicine residency at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. His academic focus is in understanding the decision-making process, how it is influenced by internal and external factors, and how it changes our health and illness outcomes. Austin, along with David Perlmutter, MD, is the co-author of the forthcoming book, Brainwashed. He is also interested in methods of improving burnout and poor mental health in the medical field. He writes for Psychology Today on his blog, The Modern Brain. Welcome, Austin. We are so happy to have you here with us. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. So we're talking all about the brain. This is your specialty. I know you're doing a lot of work surrounding this, not just with your new book, but your work in general. So just tell us what you're working on and what you want our audience to know. Yeah, well, let me clarify one point right off the bat. My specialty isn't necessarily the brain. We would generally consider that to be the domain of, let's say, neurologists or psychologists. But where my interests lie are in chronic diseases. And that's really what got me interested in internal medicine in the first place, because internal medicine is this branch of medicine where we see all the people with things like diabetes and hypertension and Alzheimer's disease. And a lot of these are preventable chronic diseases. And so my, my desire was to 
better understand what we know about why these things happen and better understand what we could do to start mitigating some of these disease processes. And something that I found consistently is I was doing a lot of counseling for my patients. I was telling them, here's what you need to be doing. And a lot of my patients already had kind of the long, uh, the long-standing manifestations of these conditions. So really intense diabetes or heart failure. And some of my patients would have the early stages, the pre-hypertension, the pre-diabetes, the small problems in heart function. And, and I was doing a whole lot of explaining what they needed to do with their diet and exercise and telling them, here are the things we know will help you to prevent those diseases. Unfortunately, as a lot of providers will understand, these things just don't go so well. We, we have the patients come into the clinic, we sit them down, we say, hey, it looks like you're a little overweight. Here's what you need to do to lose weight. And we pat ourselves on the back and say, we did our preventive screening, we did our preventive counseling, uh, everything should be great. But as it turns out, the vast majority of patients aren't able to follow through on those recommendations. They hear what you're saying, and they very well may want to make those changes, like getting to the gym or eating healthier food or even things like spending more time with friends and family. The things that we know will help prevent disease and help to create a life of wellness. But there was this, this block, this gap between knowing what they wanted to do, having that information, and following through. And so in the last couple of years, my dad and I have been looking at this from the perspective of what is going wrong? What can we do differently to help bridge that gap between information and action? How do we create this bridge? And what we've found is, first of all, something pretty straightforward, that these problems, this, this gap is in part because of our decision-making. We need to make the better choices more of the time. And the decision-making, as you might expect, is largely governed by the brain. It worked out really well that my dad is a neurologist and I'm coming in with internal medicine with an understanding of these chronic diseases. We're able to put our heads together and say, what happens in the brain that predisposes us to good decisions and predisposes us to bad decisions? And if we can better appreciate what is going on in the brain, is there a way we can use that to set ourselves up for better choices and thereby make it more likely that we reach those outcomes, those things that we care about, which might be losing weight or spending more time in the gym, getting into shape or eating healthier, or even, as I said, spending time with friends and family, the things that we know are linked to these things we really care about, like happiness and longevity. With all of that considered, that's really what this book is about. This book is about finding that bridge between information and action. It's the question of saying, you know, we're spending 10 billion or so dollars a year on self-help in the United States. We've got the information, but we can't follow through. And as it turns out, there are ways we can design our brains to allow us to follow through. And they're really straightforward interventions, but it's time we look at this from the perspective of how do we set up our brains for good decision-making instead of just saying we need more information. We need a new dietary change, or we need that special exercise that's going to make everything work. Like those things may work, but those are short-term fixes, and we need the long-term solution. <laughs> it's really fascinating because I think as a health practitioner provider, you probably get a little down on yourself or feel a little defeated when there's lack of compliance. Right? You think like I'm not able to help this person. Where is that coming from? What's missing? And it sounds like you have found another way in. It's almost like we're kind of biohacking the brain, right? So I think that's exactly right. And and you alluded to this this fact that is absolutely the case, which is it's really tough if you're a provider and you think you're doing everything you can and still you're not getting the outcomes you want. But I'd say it's maybe even more challenging if you're the patient and you come in and your provider tells you, look, you need to lose weight, start eating healthy. And then you as the patient don't do it because then it puts all the blame on you. You right. say, I hmm. couldn't get myself to do it. I know what I need to do and I couldn't follow through. And what we're saying is, you know, it's not a helpful way of looking at it. Instead, what we should be doing is saying, how can I set myself up so I make better decisions more of the time? And it takes you out of this paradigm, which is you wake up in the morning, you go downstairs, you have a donut and an apple, and it's all coming down to, can I choose the apple? And if you make the wrong choice, then you messed up for the day and you're a failure. That's just not a good way of looking at it. 
So we need to get upstream of it. And it might just be as simple as saying, we know that getting more sleep improves the quality of your decision-making. It improves the quality of your dietary choices. So maybe instead of spending all your time worrying about how you're going to pick that apple, you instead go to bed an hour earlier. And that gives your brain the ability to say, yeah, of course I want the apple. I'm fully in control. I mean, it's obviously not that straightforward, but honestly, just finding these little ways to intervene on building a brain for better decisions is, I believe, a much more functional way of looking at this than is saying, well, I just need to force myself to go to the gym or to eat that apple instead of the donut. Yeah. And I love what you said about sleep because I've actually kind of transitioned my nutrition practice the last year to almost focus more on sleep. But I never really thought about it the way you explained in your book, Brainwash, which Lauren and I both have read. So I really like that approach because like Lauren said too, it's really frustrating when you put together this beautiful nutrition exercise supplement plan and they come back two weeks later and they haven't done anything. So the, the whole brain thing is so fascinating to both of us, I think, and especially a lot of your dad's work too, Dr. Perlmutter as well, because we have Alzheimer's in our family. We lost one of our grandfathers from Alzheimer's. So I've always been really interested in preventing disease in the brain and just optimizing everything. So the book was yeah. great for all that. Well, thank you so much. And as it relates to Alzheimer's, I too have Alzheimer's running in my family. One thing that is so catastrophic with conditions like Alzheimer's disease frontotemporal dementia, anything that is one of these brain processes is what happens in those diseases is you lose the ability to make good choices. And so once you get into that spiral, you're then not going to be as able to regulate your dietary decisions. So that's why it's so critical we make these changes now, because you can see how even in the context of one night of sleep deprivation, that is going to change kind of your emotional reactivity. That's going to change your preference for eating healthy food versus junk food. That's already changing your decision-making. And then when that decision-making changes to preferentially do these short-term behaviors, these instant gratification reward behaviors, that unfortunately is going to set you up for things like inflammation and chronic stress, which long-term will disable your brain's ability to make good decisions. So it puts you into this spiral, which long run again, will then increase your odds of developing a condition like Alzheimer's, which is kind of at that point, your decision making is on the rapid downhill slope. I think it's really important to talk about this spiral. And I think that relates to this issue of willpower, where we feel like we have the power to make these decisions, but maybe it's not always an issue of power. And, and I also like to said about feeling like it's our fault that we're unhealthy. We really talk about that a lot in the book. So I almost would like to go back and talk about the brain, maybe structurally. Can we like this picture of the brain, the different parts of the brain? You talk about it really clearly and beautifully in the book about the different parts that are sort of like competing with each other and how they have been like jacked by chronic stress in the modern world. Yeah, absolutely. I think as a general disclaimer, we know that it's not like one part of the brain manages something and another part of the brain manages something else. We know everything is interwoven, that these things, parts of the brain are in constant uh, communication, bi-directional communication. But what we also know is primarily from these studies where people have actually lost a part of their brain for one reason or another, that certain parts of the brain seem more implicated in certain ways of thinking and certain processes. And so for the purposes of this book, we really focused on a couple of key areas of the brain. One is something that if you're reading any self-help books right now, you've probably heard a lot about, and that's the reward system. And so that's talking about dopamine. It's talking about how we perhaps choose short-term versus long-term rewards. And that dopamine system is integrated into multiple other parts of the brain. But the parts that I think are even more important to appreciate for the sake of this discussion are the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. So let's start with the amygdala. Uh, this has been called kind of an emotional hub in the brain. You might've heard of it primarily as the fear center, but it's also involved in memory. It's also involved in decision-making and it's absolutely essential to healthy function. The amygdala is helpful in your ability to process emotion. It's helpful in enabling you to process potential threats in the environment. Like that's kind of the classic mechanism of the amygdala is it sets you up for that fight or flight response so that if you're walking along the street and you see a snake, you don't have to think to yourself, 
hmm, snake. What do I know about snakes? Well, some of them bite, some of them don't bite, some of them poisonous, some of them are not. And then make your decision. Amygdala says, snake, let's get out of here immediately. You're, you're not even really conscious of how it happens. Really important. So fast. But let's talk about the last part of the brain. And we'll get back to maybe what's going wrong with our modern society and the amygdala. But the last part of the brain that we really emphasize is this prefrontal cortex. And as we described in the book, the prefrontal cortex is a evolutionary newcomer in that it seems to be found more so in the mammals. It seems to be found larger, at least as a proportion of the brain of the cortex in humans. And why it is so important is that the prefrontal cortex gives us these abilities, these abilities of kind of questioning, of making the best decisions with the available information. It's it's hugely involved in what are called our executive functions. And our executive functions include things like impulse control, the ability to maintain attention, our working memory, and our cognitive flexibility. So we see that when people have a disabled prefrontal cortex, like from a, a stroke or some other condition where they have a lesion there, they lose that ability to employ good decision-making. They also lose things like empathy. Really important, again, that is something that differentiates us from other animals. So coming back to the amygdala and why these two systems are so critical to our decision-making, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex are in constant communication. The emotional information that comes out of the amygdala funnels into the prefrontal cortex. The information from the prefrontal cortex shoots back to the amygdala. And they, they have this dynamic interplay, which allows us to manage our lives, allows us to really specifically manage our emotional reactivity, and probably also allows us to suppress impulsivity. It allows us to kind of approach life from a perspective that isn't so anxious, isn't so stressed out. So if everything was functioning at its optimal level, we would be getting that information from the amygdala. It'd be shooting over from the, to the prefrontal cortex. We'd kind of assess it for the most part and then decide what to do. And occasionally, we would also have these impulsive kind of instinctual decisions that come from the amygdala, which is, there's a snake, I need to escape. You can appreciate how back in the day, I don't know how we describe this, the paleo days, the thousands of years ago, the millions of years ago days, if you're living out there with your tribe and uh, you know, you're trying to fend off these predators, you maybe need to rely more on those instinctual escape mechanisms, that acute stress mechanism that gives you the cortisol, that increases your glucose availability, that increases your norepinephrine and increases your heart rate, your blood pressure, so that you can live another day, so that you can ideally outrun a saber-toothed tiger, although I don't know if that ever happened, but Maybe pick up your... <laughs> we talk you know. about that a lot on here. Did that really happen? We love the analogy. <laughs> yeah, that poor well, saber-toothed tiger always gets blamed. It has been villainized so much in these <laughs> conversations. Well, what else were we worried about? Maybe like a mastodon stumbling into your camp. That would be a big problem too, right? Yeah. So in any case, these acute stressors were very necessary for us, and that system was very necessary for us to survive. And as I'm sure you guys have discussed and know very well, the problem is that now we are in this constant state of stress, which is provided by everything from the news to uh, even you know, our interactions with other people, our relationships, our work interactions, our drive to and from work. So this keeps us in a state of kind of constant vigilance. And the amygdala loves that. That's what it does. It is a threat response system. So what we see in the modern world is chronic stress. And what we know about chronic stress is it's associated with a decrease in the actual matter, the mass of the prefrontal cortex on brain scans. It's associated with more impulsive decision-making. And it's also been shown primarily in animal studies at this point that chronic stress literally kind of shrinks and kills off the neurons in the prefrontal cortex and expands the neurons in the amygdala. And so for that reason alone, I think we need to be thinking about what is it that the modern world is doing to our decision-making process, and as it pertains to at least chronic stress, that seems to be kind of overactivating the amygdala, keeping us in this fight-or-flight mentality, and deactivating the part of our brain that is enabling us to suppress that kind of fight-or-flight emotional reactivity that comes from the amygdala. And I know this might be getting too technical, so stop me at any point if you want to want a more simple explanation of this. No, no, this is great. Keep going. 
Okay. So again, talking about what it is in the modern world that is a problem, I think that these can be, or these influences can be categorized in two primary ways. One is what is actively going on, meaning what are other people doing to take us away from good decision-making and kind of by overactivating, let's say, the amygdala, and then what is more passive in the modern world? This is, a, I think, a helpful framework. So starting off, what is actively going on in the modern world that is taking us away from good decision-making? I think the easiest thing to do is, of course, to blame corporations. That seems like what everyone wants to do. And I would caution that. I would say it's not helpful to just have this overarching corporations are malicious, are evil idea. They're trying to, to kill us. That's not realistic. Instead, you want to look at what are the incentives for a corporation, let's say, that produces junk food or produces cigarettes or you know, a social media corporation. They want to sell their product. And if that's a company that is producing a food that creates inflammation in your body and damages your health, well, that may be secondary. So their incentives are to make money and they make money by selling that junk food. Similarly, let's say you're that uh, social media company and your goal is to keep people's eyes on your product. Well, we know that humans have a negativity bias. That means people pay more attention to the negative as opposed to the positive. So if you're that company and your goal is to keep people's eyes on your screen, you know that by putting up some stressful negative content, people are more likely to spend their time on your website. Why does that matter? Well, as we describe in the book, inflammation may itself take our thinking away from long-term orientation and towards short-term orientation. So again, you have this junk food company that's producing junk food, creates inflammation in your body. That's going to create worse decision-making in us, not necessarily some sort of an evil thing, but also appreciating that if a company's incentives are to make money and they make that by selling you that junk food, they're going to do that. I mentioned a cigarette company. You know, you think about we clearly know cigarettes are bad for us. And yet, if a company is trying to sell you cigarettes, that's not necessarily malicious. It's just that's what they're trying to do. Coming back again to the social media company, if they're creating chronic stress, and we know chronic stress that I just described is bad for our decision-making process, then here you have their incentive, which is to make money, to keep you, your eyes on the screen. But that is not synchronized with what we want out of our lives, which is good decision-making, which is a a balance in our different parts of the brain and not having an over-reliance on the amygdala, which again, appears to be activated by chronic stress and unfortunately seems to be activated by inflammation in the body. So to pause here for a second, this is what I describe as kind of these active processes that are disabling our decision-making. And when we disable our decision-making, it makes us more likely to choose short-term gains over long-term gains. And so that's you know, eating that bag of chips at the end of the day, as opposed to going to the gym, which benefits that junk food company, or that spending an hour or two on social media instead of meeting up with friends, which benefits that social media company. The second major part of this is what are these more passive influences of the modern world that are shifting our brains more towards short-term thinking, and thereby making it harder for you to follow through on what it is you want to do? And as we described in the book, there are many of these things. I think one of the ones that is most important and most missed, which we already alluded to, is sleep deprivation. The modern world is not optimized for sufficient sleep. And I got to tell you, I know this better than a lot of people because in medical training, it's almost some rite of passage, which is you have to be sleep deprived. You have to go into the hospital and be on call overnight where in theory you could sleep. But I'll tell you what actually happens is you go into a call room and you get these phantom pages where you think, oh my goodness, a nurse just paged me and I missed it. And you pull out your pager or you think your cell phone goes off. You're not getting good sleep. Oh, wow. But, yeah, that's pretty crazy. And that's dangerous. <laughs> it's so dangerous, right? To have doctors not yeah. sleeping. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this is an entirely separate subject, yeah. kind of. But it is, why are we creating a generation of physicians who are going through training that kind of systematically disconnects us from the stuff that we know is linked to happiness, that we know is linked to health, that we know is linked to good decision-making. And then we put these people out into the workforce as the people who are supposed to be the arbiters of health and who are supposed to be making balanced and good decisions for their patients. It, 
doesn't really make much sense to me, but again, kind yeah. of another subject. Yeah, so, in uh, the simplest form, you're just not walking the walk at all. So how can yeah. you truly help people? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it, it doesn't really make sense. I think that here you have a, a dynamic where, uh, not to get too far off track here, but you have a dynamic where it's a lot of, this is the way things have always been in medicine. Um, and that applies to a whole lot of parts of the medical establishment. But as it relates to training, it's, look, you're going to go in, it's going to be incredibly stressful. You're not going to get to talk to your friends and family and, and dot, 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 better doctor. Even though we don't really have evidence to prove that, it's, oh, well, let's not mess with things because things are going really well. And I would argue, no, things are not going really well. And yes, we should be messing with things because we've got evidence that these types of interventions like, oh, I don't know, getting some sleep in a given night is linked to better outcomes for patients, for providers, for the world as a whole. Yeah, interesting. I just want to go back really quick and make sure I, I understand this. So you're saying we really do need the different parts of the brain to all be working, but yeah. how much between like the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, like yeah. what is that optimal balance? We need the amygdala to be firing, but we right. need what's happening right now is it's taking over. And right. is that creating the inflammation? Can you sort of explain what's actually sure, happening sure. in the brain and how that relates to like dopamine pathways and the addiction? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of a lot of subjects that you brought up right there. It's a very dynamic interplay. And there's no way that we can say we need a ratio of 70% of our decisions coming from the prefrontal cortex, 30% from the amygdala. But what we are advocating for is more top-down processing, which means the prefrontal cortex is kind of calling the shots. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't take information, emotional information, kind of reward system information and incorporate it. But what it does mean is you are thinking about your decisions as opposed to reacting to the world around you. And as it pertains to, let's say, inflammation, as I mentioned before, more inflammation seems to activate the amygdala. More inflammation seems to relate to poor decision-making. And one of the ways it may be doing that is through suppression of the prefrontal cortex. That is not something that has been as clearly substantiated in the literature. But here's what we know long run is that inflammation is associated with cognitive decline, right? So we we know that there is this link between inflammation and poor brain function. What we're trying to uncover right now and where we have a lot of really fascinating data is how inflammation changes our short-term decision-making. And it may be that it's more to do with the reward pathway than it is necessarily with this activation of the amygdala itself. But as I said before, there is data suggesting that the amygdala is uh, more active in conditions of inflammation. And to complicate things further, the amygdala is part of the reward pathway. So all of these things are interwoven. What we're really advocating for, again, is that in a given day, you make a, a greater percentage of your decisions in a more reasoned manner and in a way that benefits you as opposed to reacting to the world around you. What that means is the difference between having a bag of cookies open and half finished before you actually know that you've opened the cookies <laughs> and having that, that couple of seconds to say, how am I doing right now? Do I actually want the cookies? What are they going to provide to me as far as the benefit in my life? And if it is something where you can say, yes, these cookies are in alignment with who I want to be, then by all means, I'm not advocating for cookies as a, a general theme, but yes, you can have those cookies. It's just more of saying, we want to rely on the prefrontal cortex as our first line of decision-making and not be so impulsive and emotionally reactive, which are processes that seem, again, associated with the amygdala. I'm not sure how much that straightens it out because it is kind of a complicated subject, but let me know. No, that's very helpful. And since we're talking about cookies, I'm just wondering, like when someone says, or when someone picks up a bag of cookies and they say, I already know I'm going to eat the whole bag. What's happening right. there? Is that their amygdala is already taking over? Yeah. I, again, hard to say exactly what is happening there. I think to start with, we all have a sweet tooth. And I think that's coming back to this evolutionary basis, sweet things were safe and sweet things gave mm-hmm. our body a message that, Hey, it's time to store fat for the winter. So let me eat these calories that are going to turn on insulin signaling and pack up my fat cells. So it really 
first of all, don't blame yourself if you like sweet, sugary foods. That's not a moral failure. That is basically your evolutionary wiring. Yeah. Yeah, that's but, so interesting. Yeah. There's, there's so much to dissect when it comes to what are the situations that led to you picking up this bag of cookies and saying, I already know I'm going to eat the whole bag. Now, that may mean that you've basically put your decision-making on pause and you've allowed for whatever's going on within you. It might be higher levels of stress. It might be a sleep deficit. It might be some emotional trauma that just happened to you at work. It might be that you're just saying, I need to respond to this right now. And therefore, I don't, I'm not doing the decision-making thing. I don't have the ability to bring my prefrontal cortex online and actually question it, which in some ways is what it sounds like. But again, there are a lot of things involved with this. For example, we know that sleep, sleep deficit is going to increase people's preference for kind of like unhealthy fats and refined carbohydrates and more calories in a given day. So when you say, I already, already know I'm going to eat this whole bag, Maybe you're just responding to your body's cues, which are, hey, I'm going to eat some extra calories right now. I'm not feeling that well. We need to fix this state. And you're just kind of saying something to blanket what you're actually experiencing. So it may not be that the words matter that much. Mm, okay. Yeah. This is very complicated. I can see that. <laughs> yeah. But so just to jump a little bit back into some of the recommendations in the book without giving away the book, because I know you talked a lot about the sleep deprivation already. I have to say one of my favorite chapters was all about nature. Yeah. Like I got halfway oh. through the chapter and I, I put the book down and I went for a 20 minute walk because it was just <laughs> she like, was affected. So, yes. yes. Yeah. I don't know. Can you share a little bit more about that part? Yeah. Well, let's start with the basics. I think most people who go outside, walk around outside are going to feel better. And I know that I certainly did when I was doing my medical training, I would go outside and in the Pacific Northwest, it's kind of rainy for a lot of the year and incredibly dark out. So, you know, it takes a lot to go out into that and actually come back feeling better than when you went out, but somehow I still would. And so I appreciated there's something going on. And we, when we were looking into the research for this book, again, we were primarily focused on what are the interventions that will improve decision-making, that will improve our connection to the prefrontal cortex for healthier decisions. And we looked into this nature research, and, and why is that? Well, it turns out that nature seems to pretty consistently lower levels of stress. And as I said before, stress seems to disconnect our brains in such a way that favors uh, less of that good decision-making. It blocks the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala that is necessary for good choices. So one, nature seems to lower stress. Two, nature seems to lower inflammatory markers. As I said before, inflammation is a problem for <laughs> the whole body, right? You, you don't want chronic inflammation in your body. It's been linked to basically everything that you don't want. But again, that even uh, you know, a short amount of time in nature can lower inflammatory markers. And then there was this other big piece of it, which I found so relevant, and that is nature seems to lower our sympathetic tone. And why that's important, it kind of ties back into the stress system, but sympathetic tone is part of that amygdala function, which is the stress response. And over time, sympathetic tone seems to lead to conditions like high blood pressure and heart disease and even potentially some inflammatory conditions. So you, you need your sympathetic nervous system, but it seems like in the modern world, it's constantly activated and nature seems to calm it down. And then there's this other area of research, which maybe is the most interesting, which is that nature exposure seems to improve executive functions. Um, there's been a lot done on nature improving our ability to maintain attention on a task. Um, but the bottom line here is that I kind of was looking at nature as an out, right? When I was busy at work, whatever it was, this is time that I'm just going to go out and not really be productive. But it seems like by going out into nature, you may actually make yourself more productive because of something like this attention restoration theory, which is when you go and spend time in nature or look at some beautiful nature scenes, you come back with more attentional control. You're better able to maintain focus. So whole lot of actually amazing benefits there as far as like these markers. And then to add to the story, you see this research that's been done in hospitalized patients where even just looking out into a natural environment as opposed to 
like a traditional urban brick environment, improved outcomes, meaning patients went home earlier, they had less pain, they had less nerds, uh, sorry, less notes from nurses, which for things like, uh, you know, patient is really annoying, which obviously is a good outcome <laughs> too. But again, to say that nature is an intervention that is, honestly, it's free, that anyone can benefit from that will help to improve these markers of stress, of inflammation, but also potentially to directly improve your decision-making process. So if you're visiting someone that needs medical attention, bring them a plan, yeah. is what you're saying. <laughs> or make sure they Absolutely. have sunlight, a window open, something. So yeah. I, I mean, you're, you're dead on. As far as an easy intervention, that means that if you, really anyone, anyone's going to benefit from something as simple as a plant. So if you're trying to do something that is very straightforward, just get a plant. And there's even data to suggest that having a picture of nature, like a photograph of nature, will still give you some health benefits. It really doesn't have to be anything too complicated. Amazing. That's probably a good place for New Yorkers to start because it's very <laughs> difficult to get in nature here. I mean, this island is only two miles wide, but to get to nature, you really have to take time away from what feels like production, productivity. And as you said, it may feel like you're checking out and not being productive instead of adding to the activity, which I think that's a really great point. So, yeah, yeah I, I think I was, it's similar to meditation, right? It's like, oh yeah, just take that twenty minutes to meditate, and you know you're going to be so much, you know, happier, more productive. But a lot of people see it as like, well, I don't have twenty minutes; I can't waste. It's downtime. Time. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's kind of like what I tell patients about eating healthy food is it may seem practical to eat crappy food right now because it's cheaper, it tastes good, and it's more readily available. But you're going to pay for it in the long run right? 10, yeah. 20, 30 years, you're going to pay for that with declining quality of life with medical bills. And so when it comes to something like meditation or nature time, it may seem initially like getting that extra hour of work in is the thing to do. But long run, which is really what we're talking about here, that's like, you know, day trading stocks, if you don't know what you're doing, as opposed to investing and leaving it alone, which is what you want to do for long term success. So how do you convince someone that is so adamant about just working, working, working? That is a phenomenal question. And as somebody who has spent a lot of time working, 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 I can see how there would be a barrier there. But I think the first thing has to come down to awareness and honesty, which means there's not going to be any change made unless you feel like there is a, a, a place for change to be made. And so if you are a person who feels like their life is going perfectly well, then maybe this won't be of as much interest to you. But if you're like most Americans, you probably already suffer from at least one chronic disease. If you're like most Americans, you probably suffer from overweight or obesity. If you're like 18 to 19% of American adults, you suffer from anxiety. There are you know, millions of people who are suffering from depression and probably about 50% of people in the United States that suffer from loneliness. So first, again, we've got to be aware, we've got to be honest and say, how am I doing? And if the answer is not so great, and the reason for that is one of those things that I described, then what I'm saying is these are interventions that you can make that are evidence-based, that are for the most part free, and are for the most part things that can be easily incorporated into what you're already doing. Coming back to your exact question, let's say you're that really hard worker. You've got to ask yourself, why are you working so hard? What is the goal to this? What do you want out of your life? And I know this is kind of getting into philosophy, but I think really important to set your objectives for what you're trying to get out of existence. Are you working for the sake of working? Are you working for the sake of making a lot of money? If those are your answers, well, first I'd say you probably need to question those answers, but, <laughs> but also then, okay, fine. Just do what you need to do to, to do that. I mean, you could make the argument that if you really want to make money, then you need to make the best decisions possible. And so these interventions make sense from just that perspective. But I would say, and after talking to my patients and asking them what mattered to them, they would say, the things that we care about are being able to spend time with the people that are close to us. Um, it's able, being able to literally, some of my patients would say, go to a, a weekly game of cards with the old farts club. But that's, that's the stuff that matters. And if, if that is what we're trying to get out of life, then we need to say, 
is what we're doing in alignment with that? And once you introduce that line of questioning, then you can say, well, how do I incorporate aspects of what we talk about in Brainwatch that have been, again, shown to improve decision-making, or I should say improve the parts of the brain that are are functional for good decision-making that have been shown to lower symptoms of depression, lower symptoms of anxiety, to reduce rates of developing these chronic diseases. But you got to start with the awareness because unless you want to make a change, this is all meaningless. Right. Makes a lot of sense. So once you have the awareness, we talked about strategies like your meditation, fill in a few more of those tactics. For sure. The entire brainwash program comes down to, at the end of the book, a 10-day plan. And what we're hoping is that people will be willing to commit to spending just 10 days to apply these interventions, which we believe will lead to kickstarting your brain into better decision-making. And, oh, by the way, will probably improve your overall health as well. So we include things like digital detox, which I know is kind of a buzzword term right now, but in essence, restructuring your interaction with your digital devices in such a way that you are benefiting from them, um, that you're using them as opposed to them using you and altering your brain and taking away your time. So again, we incorporate these things, including this, what I think is really helpful is a, a time acronym that we developed to give people the ability to reclaim their independence or reclaim their kind of autonomy around these digital distractions. Then we incorporate things like we've already described. We talk about a practical way of adding nature into your life. We talk about how to get engaged with some exercise. We talk about dietary change. We talk about interpersonal connection, about meditation. And we talk about really the role of empathy, which has been also shown to improve quality of life and seems to activate the right parts of the brain. It seems to set us up for success. So that may sound daunting, but trust me, it's not that complicated. What we're really asking people to do is just to incorporate a couple of these primarily free interventions into their lives and and see how you do. We feel like after 10 days, people will honestly feel like their decision-making is better, will feel like their health is better. And to make it even more exciting, we're going to do this too. So (laughs) when things come up, you can ask us about how we're doing. And we also have a bunch of kind of like, Q&As for the challenging parts of this that we posted on our website, brainwashbook.com. Yeah, Lauren and I are going to do the 10-day. Fantastic. Together. Yeah, I'm excited I love it. for it. Yeah, we're deciding on a day to start together, but I love it. I mean, 10 days yeah. is very little, I mean, zero risk and so much reward. Yeah. Especially yeah. in the new year when everyone's like ready to go and to make changes and start anew. Well, that, that I think is a really interesting point. And that is, you're going to have all of these people who are starting out January with these resolutions. Uh, This is the year that I'm going to lose 30 pounds. This is the year I'm going to reconnect with my old friends. This is the year I'm going to finally follow through on what I know I need to do. Um, Unfortunately, as it relates to these things, most people don't follow through. And so you'll see there's a whole lot of conversation right now, for example, on what diet should I choose? Should I be paleo? Should I be keto? Should I be vegan? Should I be pescatarian? And I think it's great to have the conversation, but you know which diets work? are They're the ones people stick to, and most people don't stick to their diets. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what, what we're talking about with Brainwash here is, okay, wonderful that you have all of these things that you want to do, but it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if you have the best book on diet, the absolute best book on getting a good night's sleep, the best book on meditation, the best self-help book possible. If you don't follow through, they're worthless. You might as well throw them away because it's not just about information. So that's why we've got to focus on setting our brains up for following through. I I like what you just said about information because I think I have been guilty as a practitioner to just throw information at patients. I'm like, well, if I can show them what happens to the cell membrane when they eat canola oil, (laughs) you know, they'll stop eating canola oil, but like that doesn't happen. Yeah. yeah, it's not, it's not just a lack of information, like you said. Yeah, and, and coming back again to this sleep paradigm, it's you have a patient coming in, you say, okay, you're eating the standard American diet. Literally anything you do differently will be a benefit. And so you walk them through and talk about trans fats, you talk about these vegetable oils, you talk about refined carbohydrates. Fantastic. 
we expect that the objective information about what these things are doing for us, and I mean, I've been guilty of this too. You want to bring in some RCT and say, look, here's what happened with this intervention versus this intervention. Look at that number needed to treat. You're fantastic. All you got to do is this, that, and the other. And sure enough, a month goes by, a patient comes in. You say, how's, how's all the changes? And they say, I really want to do it, doc, but I, I couldn't do it. So what if instead we said, our goal is to get you from A to B. We know that the information is only part of the challenge. Every patient now that I see that I want to make dietary change for, I'm going to incorporate these sleep habits, this sleep hygiene. Because again, we know that people who get more sleep are more likely to make healthy choices, to stick to a dietary plan. And my understanding of this is, you know, we all have our struggles. We all have the thing that's difficult to do, whether that's going to the gym or putting the bagels away first thing in the morning because you're trying to do time-restricted eating and they're in the fridge. But, you know, there are back doors into good decision-making that don't require you to exhaust your willpower on opening the fridge and not taking out the bagel. Maybe that's not your objective right now, right? Don't spend so much time worrying about that bag of bagels. I mean, obviously throw it away if you're trying to eat less refined carbohydrates, but <laughs> instead maybe let's focus on something else. So whether that's sleep or spending some time out in nature or doing 20 minutes of meditation, these are ways we can kind of bypass that willpower problem and design our brains to make it easier so that when we open the fridge, it's not something where we're sitting there grinding our teeth and you know, basically become incredibly mad at ourselves if we fail. We're saying, let's start at square one. Let's get upstream of these dietary issues and set ourselves up to increase the odds we make good decisions on any given day. It's really powerful. I love that. Mm -hmm. Just to recap, I'm, I'm gathering that one, you need to have an awareness, be really honest with your goals and your why. And if you have that, and then you tackle these major strategies, sleep, reconnecting to nature, meditation, and hopefully the brain is rewired, right? That's, that's what yeah, we're and, aiming and, and for. To, to, be, to be clear, uh, you know, that's some of the most fascinating stuff in this research is that we see on brain scans that the brain is rewiring itself when people make these interventions. That's what's so interesting. We see that even after a night or two of sleep deficit, there is changing ways in which the activation patterns and the connectivity patterns look in the brain. We see that after a couple of weeks of meditation, there are these same types of changes. And again, as I mentioned before, we see that long-term, there are physical differences in the neurons, meaning size of regions of the brain that correlate with these things we're talking about. So it's all fine and dandy to say, oh, you're rewiring your brain, you're changing your brain. But we know that these things are linked to physical changes on brain scans. So you can rest assured this is substantiated by the literature. Amazing. So you mentioned that with chronic stress, we're seeing a decrease in hippocampal volume. Is that something that they're seeing reversed as well? Right. So uh, what you're referencing is the hippocampal uh, atrophy that we see with chronic stress. And what I was talking about is prefrontal cortex changes. Uh, I think that there's a lot of conversation right now about what chronic stress does, specifically as it relates to memory, to cognitive decline. And so that's one of the reasons that when we talk about Alzheimer's prevention, a plan to reduce chronic stress seems to be so important. But what we're talking about here is this more recently understood mechanism, which is that there's this interplay between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. And chronic stress is like pouring gasoline on a fire for the amygdala. And it's like killing off those neurons in the prefrontal cortex. And there's a researcher named Amy Arnstein at Yale who's been doing this research that uh, is absolutely fascinating. Over the last 10 or so years, she's kind of revealing this mechanism, which is that, as I said, you're strengthening the amygdala while dampening the ability of the prefrontal cortex. And when that happens, we're more likely to make bad decisions. I'll, I'll do this one more time for an evolutionary purpose, because I think that that's really helpful as a framework. But you can imagine that when you are under a condition of acute stress, you need to be focused. You need to have a high level of concentration. And that kind of is what happens. When you are stressed, you release a series of chemicals, cortisol, norepinephrine, dopamine, and these things appear to activate the prefrontal cortex. 
but it's it's an inverted U-shaped curve here where if you fall off the back end, it appears to be toxic. And as I've said, long-term studies suggest that people who have undergone more trauma, more chronic stress, actually have smaller size in this region of the brain. Crazy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So fascinating. I love that. Great. I would just love to hear a little bit real quick. What was it like to write a book with your dad? I, I'm, I'm sure it was a ton of work, but was that fun? Yeah. Yes and yes. <laughs> Definitely, it was a lot of work and it continues to be a lot of work because something that I didn't realize at the time is this stuff is constantly in flux. And so every single day, I'm looking up new studies and trying to figure out where is the research going? What are things that maybe I need to update because we've learned more? And what are things that maybe are being confirmed now by the research? So the work stuff, absolutely, and certainly a different type of work than what I was used to seeing patients in the clinic. As it pertains to this interpersonal dynamic, I've never had anything like this. First, because I've never written a book before, but also because it's just been a very unique experience. My dad and I have always been close, but this has changed that in a really positive way. Our dynamic was such that we both really like talking about the scientific aspects of what's going on. And so sometimes it would just be a whole lot of conversation about studies. And maybe that would be more boring to outside people. But after several cups of coffee, we got very excited about it. And then there's the other part of this, which is kind of like the, the more conversational and interpersonal bonding piece of it, which is talking about these ideas on a macro scale. What are the implications of these things? Where do we see these things going? And kind of getting to know each other on a different level by appreciating the other person's perspectives, which weren't always exactly in alignment with um, his, not always exactly in alignment with mine, mine not always exactly in alignment with his, but having this dynamic interplay where we supplemented what we knew with what the other person knew, uh, where we updated what we understood from the new data coming in from the other person's perspective, and just getting to know my dad, which seems like a weird thing to say in my 30s, but still so much more to understand. Now, you you two are a great team. You're very fortunate to have a family member. I think so too. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And really cool to have like generational differences come together too, right? Because you talk a lot, the disconnection syndrome in in the book, and that is so prevalent now. So you have probably experienced that possibly more than your your dad has. I would say the data would support that. And again, we're always liable to say, well, back in my day, things were so much better. But looking at some of these trends when it comes to these preventable diseases, when it comes to how much we're spending on healthcare, when it comes to rates of anxiety and depression, especially in our youngest generations, we're seeing some pretty concerning themes and trends. So I'd say that as it relates to those things, yeah, things seem to be a little bit worse. There are a whole lot of things in the world that are a lot better than they used to be. And as a whole, I would say the world is doing a lot better than it was even a couple of decades ago. But The really nice thing about having this intergenerational balance between my dad and me is that we had the varied perspectives on something like digital interaction. My dad does spend a lot of time interacting with his his digital resources. He's you know he's an avid poster uh, with blogs and he's an avid reader of studies that requires him being online. But I think there is a general tendency for the older generation to kind of say that digital technology is bad and people need to go back to the way they were in the past. Everything from, you know, a agrarian lifestyle where we put our computers in the dump to a more pragmatic approach. But I mean, where we came down on this is exactly how I feel. And I know my dad does too, which is technology is a wonderful tool, but we need to be more conscious about how we're using it. And I think also, you know, he's done a lot of work in the realm of gut health and the realm of nutrition, specifically as it relates to low-carbohydrate diet. And in this book, we were really trying to find a place where we could make recommendations that were of general benefit to just about everyone. And so instead of this being uh, specifically about, let's say, gluten and low-carbohydrate diet, this is a book where our nutrition recommendations are primarily based on lowering inflammation and on things that we believe are of net benefit to just about everyone, 
Um, so we're not getting into as much of the nuance on perhaps specific dietary trends. There's not a whole lot of discussion of paleo and keto in the book. Instead, it's what can we do that is beneficial to people in his generation, that is beneficial to people in my generation, simple tools to start making dietary changes that are of benefit to our bodies and to our brains and our thinking. That's great. I mean, we talk about inflammation on the podcast all the time. So I think yeah. just having like a very basic diet that's looking at inflammation is key. And and the timing of the book is great because I think between the three of us and I've talked to some colleagues over the last week, health trends of 2020, it's about the brain. I think people yeah. are ready to look at that. So yeah, good I mean, <laughs> obviously I'm a little bit biased in that I have this book coming out, but you know, we spend billions of dollars each year on self-help every year. So that means that we're kind of reading the same stuff time and time again. We're hearing these messages that eating the standard American diet is bad for us, that we need to go to the gym, that we probably shouldn't watch four hours of reality TV each day, that we probably shouldn't binge scroll on whatever social media platform you like for three hours each day and post snarky comments on our long forgotten high school friends profiles. <laughs> um, like, we know this stuff isn't good. So at some point, we're almost reading these self-help books like we would tabloids and just saying, oh, this is kind of interesting. I'm going to try something for a little while until I find the next self-help book. And we go back and forth between you know, our macronutrient content. Is it today I need to do an ultra-low carbohydrate diet or no, is it I need to really prioritize these healthy fats? I think that's all interesting. And I think for some people, it's really important to appreciate that nuance. I think specifically if you're trying to, let's say, treat a specific condition, then maybe you need to look at what is the dietary pattern that best is intervention for that problem. But when you look at things as a whole, we're talking about why is it that people can't stick to the decisions that they know are good for them? And so as a, a general kind of blanket intervention, that's where we come in. And that's why I think, as we said, you know, this is uh, a new year. It's a year where the brain is a big theme and it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's awesome. I can't wait for everyone to read the book. And and Austin, it comes out January 14th, correct? January 14th. Yep. They've just printed the book. So we are just seeing the hardcover, which is as somebody who hasn't put out a book before, it is super exciting. But January 14th, yeah. they're available. If it, you feel so inclined, you are able to pre-order it now. And we have an amazing pre-order campaign with a whole bunch of cool prizes that I'm um, I'm kind of wishing that I was eligible for, to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> I know I saw the list. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I can make up a pseudonym. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, again, congratulations. We are so excited for you and your dad. We love the book so much. It's an incredibly exciting topic and we're really just so excited to share this with our audience. So we will be linking all available resources in the show notes, including the pre-order for the book, which by the time this episode airs should be tomorrow. Amazing timing. So check that out. Uh, we loved it so much and we think you will too. And just before we close out today, Austin, do you think you could tell our audience just one piece of advice that they could take home with them today and start working on now? What would it be? One piece of advice that anyone listening can apply starting today. Well, I'll go a little bit more general and then I'll go a little bit more specific. So as a general point, I want people to understand that if they're stuck in this spiral of making poor decisions, you know, that's not entirely your fault, that the world is not set up for us to make good decisions. And appreciating that is so empowering because it means that we don't get stuck in these spirals of self-blame, stress, and then making poor decisions. That's part one. As far as a readily uh, applicable strategy, I would say sleep. I would say that giving yourself that window to get seven to eight hours of sleep starting tonight for the average person, is going to be probably the quickest thing that you can do to put yourself on track for everything from better mood to better decisions to better long-term health. And uh, again, something that was really unexpected for me was how powerful this literature is. So again, come home tonight. I know that you're probably going to think about watching your movie, having your late dinner, having some extra snacks. Just give yourself the chance to get that full night's sleep and see how you feel. Well said. Amazing advice. <laughs> yeah, you have a great perspective on all this. I really appreciate you taking the time well, to share that. I really appreciate you guys putting this information out there. It's really hard to uh, 
you know, to convince certain people that it's in their best interest to learn about things they don't understand, but to make it easier for people to have these types of conversations to to learn from other people's experience is one of the central themes in the book. And what you guys are doing is very much in line with that. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this knowledge with us. It's been a really exciting talk and we hope to do it again sometime, but absolutely, um, yeah, it's January. So we're continuing with the brain health talk. And if you have any questions about the interview today, send them to us and we can continue the conversation. But again, thank you so much, Austin, for joining us. And we hope you enjoy sunny Florida while you were there. <laughs> Funny, we're spread across the country today. I'm in New York, Austin's in Florida, and Renee is in Las Vegas. So covering lots of ground. Thank you so much <laughs> for tuning in. Anything else, Renee? No, thanks again, Austin. And thanks for everyone that tuned in today. We'll talk to you next time. See you soon. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking.